if you would, open in your Bibles to Colossians chapter number 1 tonight. Colossians chapter number 1. And uh, <clears throat> this isn't really in preparation for our Apollos course. It's just a, a message I had on my heart today. And uh, so I want to share with you tonight five reasons why you need to make Christ preeminent in your life. Colossians chapter number 1, we're going to begin reading in verse number 9. We'll read down to verse number 18. Paul says, For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, and to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of His will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God." Strengthened with all might, according to His glorious power, unto all patience and long suffering with joyfulness, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son. Now, here we begin to talk about the Son. It says, "...in whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins." who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by Him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by Him and for Him. He is before all things, and by Him all things consist. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have the preeminence. Let's pray together. Lord, we love You. We thank You for the opportunity to be in Your house. I pray, Lord, that You would stir hearts this evening, that, Lord, no matter where we're at tonight, I believe we'll be able to respond in our heart and in our life to this message, because there's not a single one of us that can't give more to You. So I pray, Lord, that You would lay claim, lay stake to our lives. And Father, that we would respond in obedience by delivering up unto You that which belongs to You. Lord, we love You and thank You, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Let me say a word about this word preeminence. The word eminence, of course, is derived, it is a, it, it is a, a variable on the word eminent. When we think of something being eminent, we're talking about something being prominent, something being exalted, something being elevated, something being honored, something being revered. Uh, oftentimes, whenever uh, people in a lot classier the company than you and me will be introducing someone, they'll say, the eminent so-and-so, the eminent senator, the eminent congressman, the eminent judge, whoever it might be. And what they mean by that is this person is of supreme importance and we are showing uh, all manner of reverence and honor and dignity to this person that we possibly can. Now, when we lay that understanding onto this word, preeminence, we understand that for something to be preeminent, or the preeminence of Christ being described here, means a few different things. First, it means for Christ to be first. He is preeminent. In other words... Uh, before we put anything on a pedestal, we put Jesus on a pedestal. A good example of this, I think, is the little lad in John chapter 6 that brings his meal to the Lord Jesus. 
And there are multitudes there that need to be fed. And he comes and he shows up and brings his uh, five loaves and two fishes. And, and one might look at that and think to themselves, we knew what Jesus was going to do. We've read it. Amen. We know that Jesus is going to take the loaves and the fishes and break them in pieces and feed the multitudes. But this little lad had no clue that Jesus was going to do that. Nor did he ask Jesus to do it. He didn't show up and say, Lord, I know that I can give you this and you can miraculously begin to break it apart and it'll just miraculously multiply and it'll be a resource that won't run out and you'll just feed all these people. No, when that little boy brings his meal to the Lord Jesus, he has no clue what Jesus is going to do with it. So what is he doing with it? He didn't know what Jesus was going to... What was he doing with it? Well, that meal was not enough to feed 5,000, but it was enough to feed one. And I believe in giving it to Jesus, what he was saying is this, I want to make sure before everybody else gets fed, that first, Jesus gets fed. Him first. But then, let me say that not only does it mean something that is first, but it means something that is a priority. In other words, not just chronologically first, but positionally first. There are certain things in your home that you make a priority out of, and me too. You've heard me ask this question before. We'll, we'll go through the little exercise again. How many of y'all would love to take a vacation next week? Anybody? Anybody tired of this rain? Anybody tired? I mean, listen, we're, we're, we ain't going to have to go to the beach. We're going to be at the beach if it don't change. I'd love to take a vacation next week. You probably would too. Well, not next week, because I won't be at Revival, but the week after. And the question then is asked, well, why don't you go? So, well, preacher, what do you mean I can't go? Well, why can't you go? You got warrants out for your arrest? You could go. You're not allowed in any states near the beach. And inevitably you'd say, well, preacher, I'd love to go, but there's a problem. What's the problem? And you'd say, well, I don't have money to go. Well, there's probably not very many of us. If we had to, we couldn't scrounge together $40 for a tank of gas to get us there. And you say, well, preacher, that could get me there, but but what am I going to spend the money on? How am I going to live when I get there? We'll worry about that when we get there. You say, I can't live that way. There's lots of folks who live that way. You say, well, preacher, even if I had the money to go, I couldn't. Why? Because I've got a job I've got to go to. Well, so? Quit your job. They ain't taking you to the beach. They ain't worrying about you while you're worrying about them. So what are you getting at? I'm saying this. You have desires, I have desires, but there is a priority list in our life. I'd love to pick up and take vacation, but I have responsibilities. And so I have to schedule and organize and set aside time and plan in order to balance all of those things because I have a priority list in life. And you have the same thing. There are a lot of things you want, but there are certain things that are more important to you than anything else. They're first, not just chronologically, but they're first positionally. Above anything else, you want those things to transpire. I think to make Jesus preeminent means to make Him our top priority in life. Our top priority. In other words, we don't worry about if anything else is getting done as long as we are serving Him and pleasing Him. And that brings me to my third point, which is this. Preeminence doesn't just denote something being first. It doesn't just denote it being a priority, but it denotes a singularity of focus. In other words, something can be prominent without being preeminent. 
And if something is first, and if something is the most or, or at top of the priority list, it's prominent. But for something to be preeminent means this, that before anything else gets tended to, it gets tended to. You know where a lot of Christians are at in life? A lot of Christians are struggling because they've made him prominent without making him preeminent. They have every intention of coming to church. They have every intention of reading their Bible. They have every intention of witnessing. They have every intention of praying. They have every intention of changing the way that they're living and, and consecrating their life to Christ. They have every intention. But because they allow just a little bit of wiggle room, because they procrastinate just a little bit, because they'll let a few little excuses in through the door, they never get any of it done. They've made Him prominent, and they want Him to be prominent. I, man, I see it all the time. I, I shouldn't talk about this, but I'm going to anyway. I see it all the time. I see people on social media completely sun flat out of church posting stuff about how important church is. I'm talking about ain't darkening the doorstep of any church, but they're talking about how important church is. You'll see people on Facebook that ain't been in God's house for two years posting stuff about how important the Lord is and how He ought to be everything in your life. He said, Preacher, are you criticizing them people? Well, yeah, maybe a little. But what I'm saying more than that is that very likely these people are well-intentioned. They're not just sitting around at home saying, you know what's going to aggravate everybody down at the church house? No, they understand. They, they, they have a value in those things. They, they, they do appreciate those things. They do have somewhat of a desire. They want Him to be prominent, but they won't take the steps necessary for Him to be preeminent. In other words, they won't be willing to say, if I have to put everything else aside for Jesus, then that's what I will do. Now, I found this in life. If you'll put Jesus in that place, most of the time, He'll give you grace enough and liberty enough to enjoy a lot of different things in life and for you to have a lot of different things on your plate and a lot of different activities. But until you put Him in the place where you say, I'm going to put Him above everything else at the expense of everything else, if that's what it takes, you won't know what it is for Him to be preeminent in your life. Preeminent. Now, here's another question. And this is what I want to preach on. Why should we do it? It's apparent that making Christ preeminent in your life is not necessary to be saved. Because there's lots of saved folks that haven't made Christ preeminent in their lives. It's evident that, evident that you don't have to, to have air to breathe, to have water to drink, to have a roof over your head, to bed to sleep in. You don't have to make Him preeminent. Because there's lots of folks that have all those things and Christ is not preeminent in their life. Let me say that you don't even, to some degree, to enjoy life and have a measure of joy, have to make Him preeminent in your life. Because I don't think that everybody that has not made Him preeminent is sitting around miserable all the time. I think they're missing some of the greatest joys in life. But there's probably some enjoyable things in there. So why, why, why should we make Him preeminent? I want you to notice five things very quickly this evening. Look with me at verse 14. Now remember, all this is building towards the phrase in verse 18, where it says that in all things He might have the preeminence. So from the point that it started talking about Jesus in verse 14 until the point that it says that in all things He might have the preeminence, Paul is listing reasons that Jesus should be first, top tier, at the expense of everything else if necessary, why He should be preeminent. And he gives his first reason in verse 14. In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. 
Let me say number one tonight, you ought to make Jesus preeminent in your life because of His cross. Because of what He did on the cross for you and me, we owe it to Him to make Him the Lord, Master, Sovereign, and centerpiece of our life. Let me say, if we want to break it down a little further, number one, because He purchased us. We have redemption. Now, redemption is is a fiscal term. We think of it in, in terms of spiritual truth. And there's nothing wrong with that. The Bible uses it in that way. It's using it that way here. But never forget that that term redeem and redemption and redeemable, those are fiscal terms. And it refers to something for which a price has been paid. A ransom has been given and the freedom of something has been procured by someone being willing to pay a price. And I just remind you tonight that Jesus ought to be preeminent in your life because He paid your sin debt. You wouldn't have a life. I wouldn't have a life if it wasn't for what Jesus did for us. Hey, if we want to just get down and do some real preaching tonight, let me just say, most of us, to a varying degree, to to, to a greater or lesser degree, were thieves and robbers of the grace of God. God's blessed us, man, with far more than we ever should have had. And very often we then want to guard it, and very often we then want to want to cling to it and, and get greedy and hold it to ourselves and live our life for our pleasure instead of for God's glory. Uh, listen, nothing would help us more than to get a good dose of remembrance about the price that He paid for our sins. You and I is on our way to hell. It's what we deserve. It's still what we deserve were it not for the blood of Christ. But He paid the price. He purchased us. Number two, He pardoned us. Even the forgiveness of sins. When I hear the term forgiveness, I cannot help but associate it with the idea of trespass. Someone does not have to be forgiven of something unless they have trespassed, transgressed, and offended another person. Uh, how, you ever had this happen in your life? You may have. I don't know. But somebody come up to you and, and, and uh, look at you and say, I'm sorry. And you not have a clue what they did? I actually have that happen to me fairly often, if I'm being frank. People come up to me and say, Preacher, man, I'm sorry about this. And I'll say, well, if I'm being honest, I didn't have a clue what was going on. So <laughs> I'll have people come up to me, especially folks with kids. There's people in this room, you've probably done this with your kids. They've been noisy, loud or something. Somebody come up to me and say, Preacher, I am so sorry for how my child acted. And I'll be honest with you, I didn't hear it. Because I ain't paying attention to your kid during the message. I mean, I'm not saying a kid couldn't get so loud that I'd notice, but I'm saying they typically don't. And I'll just look at them and say, well, I had no clue. And they look at me like I'm being gracious. They'll go, well. But I'm being honest. I didn't have a clue that your kid was making noise. I zoned in preaching, and I had no clue what was going on around me. And people come, they'll say, man, I'm sorry. And I don't even like to say, well, I forgive you for it, because I had no clue you did anything. Typically, when we talk about forgiveness, we're talking about somebody's trespassed, transgressed something. They've stepped over a boundary. They've impugned someone's holiness and righteousness. And that's exactly what you and I have done to God. We have trespassed His law, His commandments. We have stepped over the boundary of what is righteous. We've done so not just by nature, but knowingly, willingly, complicitly, we have stepped over the boundary and we have offended His righteousness. And yet in His grace, yet in His grace, 
He has pardoned us. When He should have destroyed us, when He should have smitten us, when He should have laid us low, He pardoned us. Listen, I and, and you can see this sometimes if you watch the news, if you read after criminal cases, when someone receives a pardon that was set to die. And you always see it in the movies, you know. They're sitting around and, and somebody getting ready to go in the electric chair. You've seen this in movies, I know. Uh, where they're sitting ready and they got that red phone. I don't know why it's always red. I didn't know a phone rang differently depending on what color it is, but apparently it does because it's always red phone sitting over there on a table and they're waiting. That red phone hooks to the governor's office and they're waiting for the governor to call and give a pardon. And it don't never work out that way for them poor old boys, does it? <laughs> they always fry. But when I... Li- listen, the day that I they should have flipped the switch on me, the phone rang. And the voice of sovereign authority... An impeccable righteousness spoke on the other line. When justice sought to flip the switch, mercy answered and said he can go free. If for no reason other than that, that ought to be enough for us to make Jesus our everything. Not just our something, not just our main thing, but our everything. I think number one, because of his cross, let me give you a second thing. Look down at verse number 15. The Bible says this, speaking of Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. We ought to make Him preeminent in our life, not only because of His cross, but because of His communication. There are some things, in other words, that you can learn from Jesus that you can't learn from anyone else. And because of that, we ought to sidle up real close to Him and make Him the master of our life. Let me say, number one, He reveals the Holy Father to us. He is the image of the invisible God. If you want to know more about God, if you want to know Him better, if you want to know who He is and and how He thinks and what He desires and, and what He hates, then you need to make Jesus the preeminent one in your life. If you will make Jesus the priority, the preeminent one in your life and spend time in communion with Him, you'll learn exactly who God is. I'm reminded of what the Lord Jesus told Philip in John chapter number 14. Philip, uh, the the Lord was getting ready to be crucified. He says to him, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go away, I will doubtless come again, receive you unto myself. He was saying, I'm getting ready to go somewhere. He says, whither I go, ye cannot follow. And it started to make the disciples nervous. And so Philip, he speaks up and he says, Lord, show us the Father and it sufficeth us. And the Lord Jesus makes a profound statement. A statement, listen, that the profundity is lost in the beauty of it. How profound this statement is, is lost in how easy it is to remember and to quote and how precious and familiar and beautiful it is. I think we lose the profoundness of it. He says, says, Philip, have I been so long time with you and yet thou hast not known me. You know what that tells me? You can spend lots of time with the Lord and never really get to know Him. You can spend lots of time with the Lord and never really get to know Him. You say, preacher, how could that be? By making Him prominent but not preeminent. Philip was too busy worrying about how much money was in the the bag and how much bread was in the the basket. He was spending too much time worried about folks that was coming to Jesus and, and busy about the administrative matters and details of being a disciple. He was too worried about everything else. He never got his eyes off everyone else and got them on Jesus. 
And so for three and a half years, he walked with the man. He slept under the same roof. He ate at the same table. He heard the same messages that everyone else heard. But after three and a half years, the Lord said, Have you been so long with me, Philip, and yet thou hast not known me? Then he says, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You can spend lots of time around the things of God without ever learning about God. And there's a lot of people that have ritualism without relationship. And they, listen, they know every hymn in the book, but they don't know Him. I think we need to make Him preeminent. He reveals the Holy Father, but then notice the next phrase, He's also the firstborn of every creature. Now, this is a big phrase, and it harkens back to the, the fact that all of creation is bound up, their, all of creation's fate is bound up in, in the life of Christ to a degree, because He is the source from which all of creation emanates, uh, or emanates and, and comes forth, and, and so the same promises that God made to humanity, the same things that, that in the second Adam were restored to humanity are in the second Adam also restored to creation. I understand there's some big things. Here, But what I want you to get is this. If He's the firstborn of every creature, then He's also the firstborn of, ha- of mankind, of humanity. And in that sense, He is someone that is able to identify with and somebody that's able to sympathize with and empathize with the human condition. I understand He had no sin nature and He has no sin nature. I understand He's never committed a sin, but I also understand He was tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. And I also understand He's touched with the feelings of our infirmities. And the fact that He is the firstborn of every creature means this, that He knows us better than we know us. And so, making Him preeminent in your life, in other words, pushing everything else aside to focus on Him, not only does it reveal something about God, but it reveals to us something about us. He reveals the Holy Father, but He also reveals the heart's frailty. He can tell you more about you than you could ever learn otherwise. He can reveal to you things about you that you would lie to yourself about if you had the chance. You say, well, I wouldn't lie to myself. Yes, you would. So would I. The heart is desperately wicked, deceitful above all things. Who can know it? The fact is, there are things we will lie to ourselves about. That's why we need the truth of the Word of God. That's why we need the perfect law of liberty, like a glass that we look into that reveals our natural condition, because He knows more about us than we know about us. I I don't quote Shakespeare because I find it boring and pretentious. But Shakespeare said, know thyself. And the fact is, Mr. Shakespeare couldn't know himself nor could you or I, apart from the truth of the Word of God, apart from the revelation of the person of Jesus Christ. If we want to know us, we know us by learning Him. And He'll reveal to us who we are. Look at verse 16. The Bible says, For by Him, by Jesus, were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. And then it makes two statements. All things were created by Him and for Him. We ought to make Him preeminent in our life, not only because of His cross and because of His communication, but because He is the Creator. And as such, we are His property. We belong to Him. He is the Creator. We are His creation. For the believer, the Lord has a twofold claim upon your life. Not only does He own you because He's your Savior, and He bought and paid the spiritual price of your redemption, 
But He also lays claim upon you for the same reason that He can lay claim upon anybody because He has created us. We were made by Him and for Him. It's a reminder, number one, that we were made by Him, that we, that we, we would not be here without Him. The very reason that you and I exist. And, and by the way, I don't take a deist approach at this. I, I don't, I don't merely say, well, he, he set everything in motion one day in seven days and then stepped back and walked away and just took his hands off creation. I'm talking about not only is he your creator in the sense that he created Adam and Eve from whom we all came, but he is also your creator in the sense that he gave and breathed life into you when you were conceived and allowed you to grow, to live, to develop to be born, and to walk amongst us. In other words, He's not just the Creator in in a far-off distant sense, but in a very personal, intimate, distinct sense to every single person. You wouldn't be here, I wouldn't be here, if He didn't allow us to be here. If if, uh, You wouldn't be here, I wouldn't be here, if He did not allow us to be here. Hey, listen, you understand that every single year, uh, a, a million... Unborn children don't escape the uh, the abortionist needle. A million. By the way, did you know if you add up all of the five leading causes of death in in America, if you added them all up and then multiplied them by four, it still wouldn't even come close to being as many as are aborted every single year. You hear about gun crime all the time, right? Oh, gun crime, gun crime, gun crime. Like everybody just like it's the old west. What a bunch of propaganda. There ain't a bunch of gun crime. You say, well, how many are there, preacher, if you're so smart, about 33,000 a year? And of those, something like 13,000 of them, I might have my figures a little off, Taylor can correct me, I'm sure, about 13,000 of them are suicide. The fact of the matter is, there's not, but you know what is happening every single day, 3,500, 3,500 unborn children are being murdered in the womb. And it ain't going to be long, they're going to be murdered outside of the womb too. So why is it that you made it out of the delivery room instead of somebody else? I'm saying it's the grace of God, man. I'm just saying the fact that you and I are alive today, the fact that we have life, temporal life, not just eternal life, but temporal life is the grace of God. And because of that, we ought to have no problem making Jesus our everything. We all are by Him And we all belong to Him. We're all for Him. The purpose for which you were created is to glorify God. That is the purpose for which you live, is to bring glory to Him. If you're not glorifying Him by the way that you're living, then you're defeating the purpose for which God created you. You should not be surprised if you find that an empty and miserable path. Because the only way, and this is a lot of what's happening to society in the West... We have ripped out the moorings of purpose and meaning from Western civilization. We've told people they're just primordial sludge that has fermented long enough till we sprouted legs and crawled up on land. We've told people there's no God. We've told people there's no hope. We've told people there's no heaven. And then we wonder why people are angry and violent and miserable. We've ripped meaning away from life. And the only way to restore that, number one, is by the gospel of Jesus Christ, by the blood of the Lord Jesus. It's the only way to change that in anybody's life. But even for those that are saved, the only way to find fulfillment in life is to fulfill the purpose for which God created you. That's to bring Him glory. And the only way you can do that is by making Him preeminent. Look at verse 17. I'll give you another one. The Bible says, And He, speaking of Jesus, is before all things. 
and by Him all things consist. Preacher, why should I make Him my everything in life? Why should I make Him my everything at the expense of everything else? Why should I do that? Number four, because of His competence. The Bible says two things here. First, it says that He's before all things. And second, it says by Him all things consist. I want to handle those uh, backwards if that's okay. What does it mean when it says by Him all things consist? The word literally means they hold together. Now remember, he's been talking about creation. That all things were created by him and for him. You ever wonder what it is that gives energy and strength and force to the gravitational pull that holds the planets in alignment? It is the veracity, it is the authenticity, it is the integrity, it is the impeccability of God's preserved Word. Because that's the foundation upon which it was created. Say, preacher, how do you know the Bible's true? Because the sun don't fall out of the sky. That's how I know it's true. And it's that, it's that Word of God that put it where it's hanging. It's the Word of God that put the planets where they are. It's the Word of God that set in order the rules of nature. And because they function, I know that the Word of God must be true. I've got a hundred other reasons why I know the Bible's true, but that's just one of them. By Him, all things consist, all things hold together. Now, there's a lot of spiritual truth there, a lot of big truth, but can I give you a little truth from it? That tells me this. He's real good at holding things together. And if you're like me, left to myself, things are going to spin apart. My life would be a mess. I heard a preacher say the other day, for every mile of road, there's two miles of ditch. And I would find one of them. I would find one ditch or the other. It's a lot easier to get out than it is to stay in And my life would spin out of control. And very easily and quickly can spin out of control. There's probably... I don't know if it's true. Us preachers say things like this. We ain't got no crystal ball. But we do know a little bit about human nature. It's very possible there's people in this room going to be in the ditch by this time next year. And I hope people in the ditch tonight that's going to be back on the road by this time next year. But I'm saying it could be you. It could be me. It could be any of us. And because of that, I need somebody that can hold it all together. Because I can't do it on my own. And because of that, I need to follow real, real close in His footsteps. I need to stay real, real close by His side. And I need to put Him in His preeminent place in my life. We see His sustaining reach mentioned here. He, by Him all things consist. But consider, and, and, and Paul gives this as a foundation, consider His spotless record. He's before all things. In other words, He's been the one making things uh, consist ever since before there were things that could consist. You understand what I mean? He's been holding everything together since the day that there started being things that had to hold together. In the beginning was what? Was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Before there ever was anything, there was Jesus. There was Him There was God, there was the Godhead, the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost. Before there was ever anything, there was the Word. And then, when the Word spoke, creation happened. And from that day to this, He's been holding it together. He's been holding it together. Man, I think about this all the time. When I'm I'm around a lot of hospitals, around a lot of sick folks, around a lot of folks that's having having heart issues and, and organ issues and, and, and just issues. Everybody got issues, amen? And I, I'm around a lot of people who are sick. And I, I thought to myself, and I've mentioned to some of you all, uh, I thought to myself, what a miracle it is 
that God has created, consider just the human heart. Beats something like 80 beats per, per minute, something like that. Depends on if you're in love or not, but it beats about 80 beats per minute. And think about that. 80 beats per minute, 60 minutes per hour, 24 hours per day. I don't even, I'm lost there. I can't even go no further than that. I'd have to take my shoes off. Think about how many times that heart beats in a person's lifetime. And yet God makes it with consistency and faithfulness. Keep beating and beating and beating. Consider all of the machinations of nature that have to take place for nature to, to perpetuate. But they do. God went down the laundry list with the, with Job when he showed up at the end of Job and his friend's conversation. And he went down the laundry list of all the natural occurrences and phenomenons that take place that he causes to happen. And he's been doing this since the beginning of time. And he's never once dropped the ball. Because of that, hey, that's somebody I want to trust with my life. That's somebody I want to put in a place of preeminence. That's somebody I can, tr- I can trust my fish and loaves with. I know he's going to do something worthwhile. I'll give you one final thing and I'm done tonight. I, I think we ought to put him in his place of preeminence because of the cross. I think we ought to do it because of his communication, because he is creator. I think we ought to do it because his, of his competence. He is competent. But look at verse number 18. The Bible says, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning the firstborn from the dead. I think we ought to put Him in a place of preeminence because of His communion. Because you and I have been designed by God to live in intimacy and and communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. We have been designed to be close to Him. Consider two simple thoughts. Number one, consider this. He is the link that connects us to heaven. Paul says it this way, He is the head of the body, the church. In other words, he is describing this mystical entity. And I almost, I shudder to say it that way. I believe in the local church. Amen? Uh, Listen, uh, something like 98 times, 97, 98 times. uh, I believe the word church is mentioned like 102 times in the New Testament. Something like 97 or 98 of them is talking about a, a, a visible, physical, local entity, a local church. But I cannot help but see in my Bible, Paul makes it clear on several occasions that when we're talking about the church in the sense of of, of a, a, a local group of called out believers, that's one thing. When he's talking about the body, he's talking about something bigger than just that one local assembly. He's talking about something bigger than anything visible. He's talking about something spiritual. The connectedness of every believer one to another through the fellowship of the gospel and through the union that we have in Jesus Christ. And Paul says, he's the head of all that. He is the one that gets us in. He is the one that keeps us in. He is the one that provides us entrance into this precious, hallowed thing called the church. And allows us an opportunity to serve, to minister, to worship, to have encouragement, to be strengthened, to be fortified. He is the one that grants us entrance and He is the one that makes all of that meaningful by blessing this endeavor with His Spirit, with His presence, with His power. We are designed to commune with God. And because of that, we ought to make Him preeminent in our lives because that's where we find the fulfillment and the communion that is necessary for us to live happy, fulfilled lives. He is the link. He's how we get to God. 
If we want to know more of God, we've got to spend time with Him. But then number two, He is the life. Notice how it says it. He's the uh, beginning. He is the firstborn. Look at verse number 18. From the dead. The firstborn from the dead. He's the beginning. The firstborn from the dead. It's a reminder to me that any spiritual life that I have, Christ talked about it, He called it life and life more abundant. In other words, there's a life you can live that's not abundant. I think that's where a lot of Christians are, if you want me to be honest with you. I think a lot of them are are living life, not just a temporal life, but a spiritual life. But they're not living an abundant life. They're just barely getting through. But the Bible's desire, God's desire, His design, is not that we live just barely scraping by with the crumbs, but that we be feasting on the manna. That we be walking in perpetual, deep, intimate fellowship with Him through His Word and through prayer. If we want to experience that kind of life, the kind of life God designed us for, it's going to require... You say, how do you know it's going to require it? Because there's lots of saved people that love the Lord, that are that are genuinely trying to do something for the Lord, that are not experiencing what Paul talks about here. So if we're going to experience that, we're going to have to make Him preeminent in our lives. I ain't talking about any kind of second blessing. Uh, listen, God's done blessed me with a hundred million things before I get to what the Nazarenes call the second blessing. Amen? I ain't talking about speaking in tongues. I ain't talking about sign gifts. I'm talking about walking in the power of God's Spirit in such a way that it arrests my life and behavior, guides me, directs me, uh, orchestrates and coordinates my steps in my life and causes me to live in such a way that brings God glory. He's the firstborn. He, he's the, the beginning. In other words, we ain't even begun until we've begun with Him. That's why it has to be preeminent. First, first, we've not even begun unless we've begun with Him. So we better get Him in His rightful place in our lives. We better make Him preeminent if we want to experience these things.